music for us, but what a beautiful performance that was, and good morning. It is so good to be with you, and Merry Christmas. I, too, want to wish you, all of you a very happy, happy Christmas, and it is so good to gather with you on Christmas Day, the day that we actually celebrate the birth of our King, our Savior, our treasure. And if you are joining us for the very first time, we are so delighted that you're here. We are absolutely thrilled that you have taken the time to come and worship with us this morning. And we've been praying for you. I've been praying for you. And we pray that today you would encounter Christ and his glory at Christmas time. And we've got some uh, special guests this morning. Uh, we've got Pastor Ray's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Coffey here joining us this morning. And I think, um, yes. <laughs> yeah, give it up for Mr. and Mrs. Coffey. I think my, my parents-in-law are here as well. I, I don't know where they are, but my mother-in-law and my father-in-law, they're over there in the back. Yeah. And we've got a... We've got a very special guest uh, joining us this morning, and um, that's my brother-in-law, Danny. Danny is here. Yeah. If you are new to our church, uh, Danny, April of 2021, got diagnosed with leukemia, acute myeloid leukemia, which is a deadly form of blood cancer. And it has been such an incredible, incredibly difficult, arduous journey, painful one for him and his family. But uh, we are so thankful to God that on his last checkup, his, everything came out clean. And he is free of cancer as of today. And so we praise God for that, yes. It is so good to have Danny here this morning, worshiping the Lord with us. Well, this morning we are in our final week of our Advent series entitled The Name. And all this month we have been looking at some of the names associated with Jesus at Christmas time. And we've looked at the name I Am, Emmanuel, and last week we looked at the name King. And this morning we're going to focus our attention on the name Redeemer, Redeemer. And so if you have your Bible with you, will you turn with me to the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth. And feel free to look at the table of contents. It's toward the front of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to look over to the person next to you. And I normally have you stand up and read the passage, but we've got way too much ground to cover. So I'm not going to do that. The book of Ruth. Before we go to God's word, let's go to the living word in prayer. Yes, God, we will praise your name forever. The name that is above every name, in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth. Jesus, we recognize you today. And we celebrate your birth this morning. And we remember how you, God, came to the world you created in the form of a baby, a helpless child, all to redeem us, to redeem humanity from their sin. God, help us to see that this morning. Help us to see who you are. Help us to see what you have done. Help us to see your glory. The glory that was manifested on Christmas. And God, we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you, Lord, to work in our hearts and in our minds for these things we cannot see on our own. We are utterly dependent on you. And so, God, would you pour out your spirit in this room? I pray, God, that you would touch every heart now and every mind and illumine your word to us. And, Spirit of God, I pray that you would help me. Help me, God. Help me to serve your people well. Help me to love them well through the proclamation of your word. So that I and we together, collectively in this room, would magnify your name, Jesus. Be worshipped. Be adored here in this place. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Everybody loves a good love story. Would you agree with that? Everybody loves a good love story. I know I do. In fact, when June and I sat down to watch Netflix, and some of us were talking about it this week, (laughs) but when we sit down to watch Netflix, guess which one of us is always going for the romantic stuff? Me. I love chick flicks, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. Hey, hey, I am secure enough in my manhood to profess my love for romantic comedies and all things romantic. That's me. I am loud and I'm proud. Now, Jean, on the other hand, she's always going for the action, the drama, the suspense thriller. Or you know what she likes? She likes stuff like the mind of a killer. She's weird like that, man. But I'm the one who's always down for a good romance. Well, Ruth has all the elements of a great love story. Tragedy, loss, despair, hope, triumph, love. So you men that hate romantic movies scored big points with your wife, your girlfriend, your fiance by bringing them to church this morning because we are about to see a love story that is deeper and more beautiful than anything Hollywood can produce. But this isn't just a nice little love story. No, if you grab hold of the truth, the message behind it, it'll change your life. I'm serious. 
Now, the book of Ruth is unique in that it's only one of two books in the entire Bible that is named after a woman. The other being what? Esther, which Pastor Ray preached on a couple of weeks ago. And not only is it one of two books named after a woman, this is the only book in the entire Old Testament that is named after a Gentile, a non-Jew. So it's entirely unique in that regard. And Ruth follows the books of Joshua and Judges. And in Joshua, the nation of Israel enters the promised land, the land that God had given his people. But then in Joshua, once they enter the land, what happens? The people turn away from God. They go after other gods, and you see this time and time again. It's a full-on display of disobedience and depravity. And the last verse of the book sums it all up when it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this was a very dark time in the history of Israel where, where God's people were engrossed in their sin, doing whatever they wanted to do with no regard for God or his law. And that is the setting of our story. And with that, we read in verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So our story takes place in a little town called Bethlehem. And Bethlehem means house of bread. Only there was no bread. These dark days were made even darker by the fact that there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem takes his family, his wife and his two sons, and they go to, of all places, Moab in search of food. Now, Moab wasn't just a foreign land. It was a pagan land with pagan gods. And you know how the, Moab, the Moabites came to be? It's sick. In Genesis 19, Lot has an incestuous relationship with one of his daughters. I know, it's gross. But that child was Moab. And the Moabites were an immoral people. They were an unclean people. So much so that God had commanded his people, the Israelites, have nothing to do with them. Have no dealings with the Moabites. And yet that's where this man takes his family. And in so doing, it was like he was turning his back on God. We continue in verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem and Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, in the next few verses, we are introduced to the tragedy of the story. And the author here uses a literary device in the, in the Hebrew language where it's kind of like a staccato. It's quick. It's choppy. There are no details, no emotions, just cold, brute facts, one right after the other. Look at verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two Moabite, these took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. There it is. In three short verses, you have ten years of tragedy. Elimelech dies, 
We're not told how, but he dies. Which means Naomi is now a widow left with her two sons. And the two sons marry Moabite women. And after 10 years, what happens? Both of her sons die. Again, we're not told how, but they die. And now Naomi has lost everything. Can you imagine? She has lost her husband. She has lost her sons. And in losing them, she has lost her provision. She has lost her security. She has lost her hope. She has lost everything. This is a picture of absolute devastation. And all she's left with are two Moabite daughters-in-law. And to make matters worse, both of her daughters-in-law were barren. They were childless, which means no descendants. And in the ancient Near East, this is the worst thing that could have happened to you. The curses, the curse of all curses, the tragedy of all tragedies was for a family to cease to exist. And all that sets the stage for what we are about to see take place. Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. This is the first time God is mentioned in the story. The Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel had visited his people and has provided Bethlehem as once again the house of bread. Verse 7. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. What's happening here? On the way back to Judah, Naomi stops, and she goes, wait, what am I doing? What am I doing? And she says to her daughters-in-law, you guys stay here. Don't come with me because there is no future with me. You need to get remarried and live your life. So stay here. Find yourself another husband and go on without me. And with that, she kisses them and they all began to weep. And you can just imagine the emotion in this moment, can't you? Verse 10, and they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in the womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should have hope, even if I should have a husband, this night I should bear sons. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of God has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So both daughters-in-law insist on going with her. But Naomi says to them again, no, you stay. There's no hope for me and there will be no hope for you if you come with me. Stay here. Find yourself a husband. Because God's hand is against me, and his hand will be against you too if you come with me. And they start weeping again. 
But this time, Orpah does what her, mother, what her mother-in-law tells her to do. She listens and returns to Moab. Now, here's a little trivia. What popular former talk show host got her name from a misspelling of Orpah? That's right, Oprah. I'm not making this up. Oprah is a misspelling of Orpah, okay? You learn something new every day. You know what's sad? What's sad is that some of you, that's all you're going to remember from this message. <laughs> Oprah is the misspelling of Orpah. But Op- Op- Orpah turns back. But now Ruth, she stays. And not just stays. We are told that she clung to Naomi. This is the same word that's used in Genesis 2.24 where it says a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave, cling to his wife. Ruth wasn't about to leave her mother under any circumstance. You are not going to get rid of me. And that's when Naomi says to her in verse 15c, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you will go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death separates me from you. Oh, what powerful words. What beautiful words. What famous words. And where do you hear these words said most often? At weddings, right? Weddings. Ruth, did you say this to Ray at your wedding? I thought so. I thought so. Perfect. But these words are often said in wedding vows. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's beautiful. These are such profound words. But this is a daughter-in-law saying this to her mother-in-law. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Ruth pledges herself to Naomi. And more importantly, she pledges herself to Naomi's God. Your God will be my God. And seeing that she is not about to talk her out of it, Naomi, we are told, said no more. Now, when they arrive in Bethlehem, and keep in mind that this is a tiny little town of less than 200 people. But the whole town is buzzing and everyone is talking. And you can just imagine what Naomi is feeling in this moment. What she is carrying in her heart as she returns. She left a decade ago with her husband and her two sons. And now she's come back with no husband and no sons. The only thing she has brought back is a Moabite daughter-in-law and the people say is that naomi naomi is that you and look at what she says to them in verse 20 do not call me naomi call me mara for the almighty has dealt very bitterly with me i went away full and the lord has brought me back empty Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? How's that for a greeting after being gone all these years? Don't call me Naomi. That's the first thing she says. Stop calling me that. Why? Because Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me that because there's nothing pleasant about my life. Call me Mara, which means 
bitter. Call me bitter for that is what I am. I left with everything and I've returned with nothing. I've got nothing because God is against me. Can you see the expression on her face as she says those words? Can you feel the hurt? I'm bitter. I'm angry. And I'm angry with God because he has afflicted me. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is its brutal honesty. I love that it doesn't gloss over reality and the reality of those who follow God. There is no fakeness here. There's no attempt to spin things to try to make Naomi look more spiritual or godly. No, she's hurting. She's hurting big time. This is a 10-year nightmare that she's been living through, and she's struggling to make sense of it all, how God could allow such tragedies in her life because nothing in her life has turned out the way she had hoped. Nothing. My guess is that there are people listening right now that can identify with Naomi. Like Naomi, some of you are hurting. You're hurting bad. Like Naomi, like your life has not turned out the way you had hoped. It feels like there's been one setback after another after another, and you wonder how you ended up here. And like Naomi, you feel angry. You feel bitter. Bitter at life. Bitter at God. And it doesn't help that so much of what we find in Christian circles today is a theology that says if you trust God, bad things won't happen to you. I can't tell you how much of this is still going around. Some of the most popular teachers and authors today espouse this stuff. Take, for instance, what Joel Osteen said at the height of the pandemic. If you've never heard of Joel Osteen, he is a a pastor of the largest church in America with over 50,000 members. Can you imagine 50,000 people flocking to his church every weekend? And this man reaches millions of people each and every week through TV and digital means. But this is what he tweeted out, okay? On April 6, 2020, the lights are going haywire. But this is what, it, what, it, what he tweeted out. Psalm 91.3 says, God will rescue you from every trap and protect you from the fatal plague, okay? And then he posts a clip of his sermon where he says, you don't have to be afraid of this virus. God has a shield around you. He knows how to keep you from harm's way. And if it does come, he knows how to heal you. He knows how to restore what was taken, and he will rescue you from every trap. That's what he said. In other words, you're not going to get COVID. And even if you do, nothing's going to happen to you because God is going to rescue you. He's going to heal you. And millions of people swallow this hook, line, and sinker. Now, what happened when those same people caught COVID? What happened when they weren't healed of it? What happened when they lost loved ones from the dreaded virus? 
What happened was the same thing that Randy Alcorn writes about, a woman who subscribed to the same theology. This is what he says. A woman who had based her life on the health and wealth theology lay dying, not of COVID, but of cancer. And she looked into a camera during an interview and said, I've lost my faith in God. She felt bitter that God had broken her promises to her. Alcorn writes, she correctly realized that the God she followed does not exist. But she incorrectly concluded that the God of the Bible had left, had let her down. How tragic is that? This is so incredibly tragic. But this is the only logical conclusion of a theology that says if you trust God, bad things won't happen to you. And when bad things do happen, when calamity strikes, when tragedy comes, we're left to wonder how a loving God could let it happen. How can God break his promise? How, how come he doesn't keep his word? And so we question his care. We question his love. We question his goodness and power. It's in suffering that some of the, the, some of the worst theology comes out of people's mouths. We say some of the most untrue things in the midst of a trial, and I get it. We're looking for comfort, right? We're longing for explanation, and yet some of the most unbiblical things are said in the midst of suffering, like open theism. If you've never heard of open theism, you will soon, because it is quickly becoming the most common explanation for why there's so much suffering in the world. And open theism, in a nutshell, is a belief that God does not or cannot know in advance the future choices his free creatures will make. So God knows of human decisions only as they occur. So God is open in the sense that he becomes aware of what we do only as they happen in response to them as they unfold. And why are so many people embracing this view? Because it gives God an out. By maintaining this view, God cannot be held responsible for all the evil and the suffering in the world since God cannot foresee it. Does that make sense? These are the same people that were on TV being interviewed right after 9-11, and I talked about this. But these people were on TV saying things like, God was surprised by this as much as we were. Or there are some things that are beyond his control. And this is their way of rationalizing how an all-loving and an all-powerful God could allow such a travesty and a tragedy to take place. But they're wrong. They are tragically wrong. We do not have a puny little God who is surprised by the things that take place in the world. We have a great God who is fully in control. And this is the truth that has to shape our theology of suffering as followers of Christ, especially when times are hard. Listen to me. When, when the suffering is real, we need to let a right understanding of God guide the way we make sense of them. Guys, listen. In times of pain, in times of suffering, We've got to be careful not to invent a God of our own imagination. No, we need to take our stand with what God had revealed about himself in the scriptures. And the Bible tells us on every single page that God is sovereign. And to say that God is sovereign is to say that God is in control. 
He controls not just some things or most things. He controls all things. He alone is in command of heaven and earth. All authority in heaven and on earth belong to him. Why? Because he is the author of heaven and earth. It's his natural right as creator and sustainer. Now, does this mean that God is the cause of all the evil in the world? Absolutely not. The one thing scripture never allows us to attribute evil to God. The evil that we see in the world comes from the fact that we live in a world that's been fractured by sin, that's been corrupted by sin on every level, including here, the human heart. And God in his sovereignty gives people choices, moral choices of free will to act in defiance of his will, which is best for us. And that is the place from which evil comes. But if there's anything the Bible teaches, it is the truth that God will use the evil. He will use the suffering to bring about good. God's word assures us that sin will not have the last word. No, what man intended for evil, what the devil intended for evil, God will turn it into good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And men and women, that is good news. That is very good news. And that's what we see taking place here in our story. There's one detail in the book of Ruth that is not ultimately under the sovereign control of God. Not one detail in this book that is attributed to chance. And the chapter ends by saying that Naomi and Ruth come to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley festival. And they have no idea what they're about to see. In the harvest fields, the goodness of God they're about to experience. And what I want to say to you here is this. In times of despair, when God seems so far, he is actually the closest. In times of desperation where God just feels so distant, that's when he's the nearest In fact, God may be setting the stage in your lives for the greatest demonstration of his goodness to you. And this is what we see throughout scripture, all throughout, that God not just allows, but he ordains. God ordains suffering in the lives of his people to set the stage for his triumphant power and grace. And that's what we see here in chapter 2. In chapter 2, Ruth goes to work because she and Naomi have to eat. And so she goes into the barley fields and starts gathering grain. And this is something that God had set up in Israel to care for the poor. There were no welfare systems uh, for widows in those days. The only way the poor could eat was by going into these fields where the landowners, by God's command, would leave grain in the four corners. And the poor would come and gather the grain, and that's what Ruth is doing here. And this is where it gets good. Because this is where boy meets girl, and girl meets boy. And it is there in the field that we are introduced to the other main character in our story. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. So she, Ruth, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come, she happened to come, to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. 
Here we are introduced to a man named Boaz. And he's the fellow who owns a field that Ruth just so happened to go to that day. I don't know if you caught that, but the verse says she happened to come to the field belonging to Boaz. That is, as luck would have it. Coincidentally, wouldn't you know it, of all the fields she could have gone to that day, she just happened to go to the one owned by Boaz, who just happened to be from the clan of Elimelech. But man, what an amazing coincidence. The language here is intentional. And what the author is wanting us to know here is that this was no coincidence at all. No, this has the fingerprint of God all over it. And the truth you need to know is that nothing happens. Listen, nothing happens by chance in the economy of God. Nothing. Everything happens by appointment when you have a God who is fully in control. And as I was studying and reflecting on this passage this week, I couldn't help but think about this in my own life. This past September, Gene and I celebrated our 22nd year of marriage, 22nd anniversary. Thank you. By God's grace, by God's grace. And I often think, I think about this often, I often think about how we came together, how God and his sovereignty brought together all that just so happened, the details of our lives. I just so happened to get an invitation to speak at a youth conference from her dad, who was pastoring a church in Denver at the time. And he got wind of me because he just so happened to pick up a newspaper, a Christian newspaper that had done a feature on me. And it just so happened that I was a grandson of a Korean pastor that he greatly admired and respected. He had all of my grandfather's books. And so he he invites me to come and speak. And wouldn't you know it, I just happened to graduate from seminary that summer, just a few weeks prior. And Jean just happened to graduate from college in New York that same summer, and she just happened to come home to Denver and volunteered to be a counselor at the retreat where I happened to speak. That's how we met. And after the conference, Jean just so happened to be scheduled to go to a mission trip in Mexico, and she just happened to fly into L.A., my hometown, at which I gladly offered to pick her up. And the rest, as they say, is history, because she fell madly in love with me. (laughs) Head over heels bonkers, and that is just the truth. (laughs) But here's the point. Listen. You are not the victim of chance or coincidence or some impersonal force of nature. There's a sovereign God at work behind all that just so happened, the details of your life. And no matter what's happening in your life right now, you can take comfort in the fact that God is at work. He is working in your life right now. He is orchestrating the events of your life for your ultimate good and his ultimate glory always. Verse 4 continues, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. That is, he just happened to come from Bethlehem the same day Ruth happened to be at his field. Another amazing coincidence. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, 
Whose young woman is this? That's Hebrew for who's that fine thing over there? Okay. So Ruth catches his eye. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Don't miss the tension here. The man says, the woman you have set your sights on is a Moabite. She is a foreign woman from a forbidden place. But Boaz isn't deterred. He's not scared off. No, he makes a beeline to Ruth and he says to her in verse 8, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your, eye be, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. How's that for an Old Testament pickup line? Come to this field often? But listen, hey, don't go to another field, okay? Stay here. Get everything you need here. Don't go anywhere else. And you're going to be safer because he told all the male workers, do not harass that woman. Do you hear me? If you so much as touch her, listen, I've got a big field. They will never find your body. You understand? So he warns the guys, do not harass that woman. And he tells Ruth, whenever you're thirsty, as you're working, when you get thirsty, drink from the jars that my men have filled. Now we hear that and go, no big deal. But you got to understand, this would have been shocking to the original hearers. Because Boaz here is crossing every social line. Foreigners fill the jars for Israelites. Women fill the jars for men to drink. Here you have Israelite men filling jars for a Moabite woman. It's no wonder in verse 10, Ruth falls on her face before him. Because things like this don't happen to people like her. And she goes on to ask why he is treating her so kindly. And Boaz tells her, it's because I had heard about you. I heard how you had left everything, everything out of your love and loyalty to, her mother, to your mother-in-law. And now the Lord is repaying you for your kindness and your devotion to Naomi. He then invites her to come and eat at his table at mealtime, which again was huge. And after the meal, Boaz tells his men to allow Ruth to gather all the grain that she wanted. He even tells them to bring out the bushels they had already harvested for her to glean. And verse 17 tells us that Ruth gleaned an ephah of barley, which amounts to about 30 to 50 pounds of barley. Ruth sees an opportunity and she takes it. She ain't too shy about it, is she? So she grabs 30 to 50 pounds of barley, and she takes it back to Naomi. And Naomi, seeing what Ruth brought back home, goes, where in the world did you get this? Who, what man allowed you to take so much home? And Ruth says, oh, it was some guy named Boaz. And Naomi goes, what? What did you say his name was? Boaz. Boaz? Are you kidding me? It was Boaz? And she says in verse 20, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. 
Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our what? Redeemers. Here it is. This is the key word in the entire book of Ruth. And this word is often translated kinsman redeemer. Why? Because a redeemer had to be a kinsman. That is a male relative of the same clan. He alone had the right to redeem. Now let me explain what the kinsman redeemer law was in Israel. Land was everything in that day. And all the families that had entered the promised land were given land. Now, God had set up a law among his people that when times were desperate, when times were hard, and a family was in danger of losing their land, a kinsman, a relative could come and redeem the land, purchase the land so that it stays in the family. Now, here's the kicker. When you redeem the property, you also took on the responsibility of providing for the relative whose land you redeemed. Okay? So you're not just purchasing the land, you're also making a commitment to the members of that family to provide and care for them. Are you with me? Now, in order to redeem, you have to have three things. Three things were necessary for you to redeem. First, you had to have the right to redeem. Okay? That is, you had to be a relative. We've talked about this. The second was resources. You had to have the resources to buy back the land. And the third thing you had to have was resolve. That is a willingness to, uh, to, to, to redeem and to buy back the land and care for the family. So you had to have all three. And Boaz had the first two. He had both the right and the resources to redeem. But did he have the third? Did he have the resolve? And that's what chapter 3 is about. And I'm just going to sum up what takes place here for the sake of time, okay? But Naomi tells Ruth to wash up, put on her best dress, put on some perfume, and go down to the barn where Boaz is working. And after he eats and has some wine, he's going to lay down and he's going to go to sleep. Now, what Naomi tells Ruth to do next is really interesting to say the least. It's actually a bit sketchy, shady. She says, go uncover his legs and lie down at his feet. And he's going to tell you what to do next. You're like, what the heck is that? What the heck is she telling her to do? It's not what some of you are thinking. Okay? She is not telling Ruth to hook up with him. That is not what Naomi is telling her to do. What she's wanting Ruth to do here is to present herself as a bride. And that's exactly what Ruth does. She follows her mother-in-law's instructions. Now what happens next? Boaz takes everything in stride. He actually, he actually likes what Ruth does. He's delighted by her at all. And um, yeah, at midnight, he wakes up startled when he sees a woman lying at his feet. Wouldn't you be? And he says, who are you? And she answers in verse 9, I am Ruth, your servant. Now spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. What does that mean? You know what that means? You ready? Marry me. Marry me. 
That's what that means. Ruth here is basically proposing. She is saying, pursue me in marriage. Talk about a liberated woman who is way ahead of her time. This is in the Bible. In the Old Testament, no less. And like I mentioned, Boaz is pleased. He likes what, what Ruth does, and she, he says, yes, I will marry you, Ruth. But there's a problem. There's a problem, and this is where the wind is taken out of our sails. Boaz tells Ruth that there's another redeemer who is next in line. And he actually has the right to redeem and marry her before he does. Sounds like a Korean drama, doesn't it? Now, what happens next? In chapter 4, Boaz goes to this other redeemer and tells him about the land that he is next in line to redeem. And he asks him, do you want it? And the dude goes, yeah, I want it. I'll, I'll redeem it. And that's when Boaz says, oh, I forgot to mention something. When you redeem the land, you'll also be taking on a widow named Naomi. And her daughter-in-law, who's also a widow. And did I mention that she's a Moabite? What a great sales job, right? It's like you go to buy a house and you wonder why it's been on the market so long. And the, and the agent tells you, oh, there's a mother-in-law upstairs and she comes with the house. And she wants you to call her bitter. You'll love her. <laughs> but that's when the guy goes, yeah, you know, on second thought, I think I'll pass. I, I, don't, I don't want it. And that paves the way for Boaz to marry Ruth. And in chapter 4, verse 13, we are told, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her. The Bible is also very graphic. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. She shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. The story ends with the grandmother holding a baby in her lap. This is Naomi, who had lost everything and returned with nothing, empty and broken, but is now holding a baby on her lap. A baby, the woman in town named Obed. And you know what Obed means? Worship. This woman who was once bitter is now holding her grandson, whose name means worship. But it doesn't end there. Just when you thought it was over, there's more. It's like those movies where it ends and the credits come on and you get up and you start walking out. And then another scene appears. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's like every Marvel movie now does that. And so you sit back down because there's more. There's a postscript. Here we have one of the most important postscripts to the end of any story. It says, Obed was a father of Jesse. The father of who? David. This is amazing. This is remarkable. 
Ruth's great-grandson was none other than King David. Guys, think about this. God used not just a Gentile, but a Gentile of the the worst of its kind to bring about the most beloved king of Israel. But it doesn't end there either. There's more. We come to the New Testament, to the book of Matthew, and you can turn there if you like. And Matthew begins his book in chapter 1 with a genealogy, and we saw this in part last week with Pastor Caleb. And this is where we see that the story of Ruth isn't just a story of redemption in Israel's history. This is a story within a much grander, greater story of redemption. The first verse of Matthew chapter 1 reads, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Then you see all these names and you get to verse 5 where it says, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. Wait, did you, did you happen to catch who Boaz's mother was? Rahab. Some of you know her story. Rahab was a prostitute who lived in Jericho, which happened to be the first city in the promised land that the Israelites were going to conquer. And Joshua sends two spies to scout the city, and Rahab, she gives them cover, and she ends up risking her own life to protect these spies from her own people, and she ultimately ends up putting her trust in the God of Israel and marries one of the princes of Israel and gives birth to a son named Boaz. Could this be the reason why Boaz wasn't deterred or scared off by Ruth's Gentile background? I believe it was. His own mother was a Gentile. A Gentile prostitute, no less, that God had redeemed. And so he follows in his father's footsteps and redeems a Moabite named Ruth. And they have a son named Obed who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David, and 28 generations later, in a little town called Bethlehem, we have come full circle. Jesus is born, who is called the Christ, verse 16. What an amazing story. What an amazing story. Through the redemption of a prostitute named Rahab and the, and the redemption of a Moabite named Ruth. We have the birth of the Redeemer, the Son of God who came to the world he created in the form of a baby, all to redeem humankind. And the good news of Christmas, men and women, is that your Redeemer has come and his name is Jesus. You remember what you remember the three things that a redeemer needed to, to redeem? The first was a right to redeem. Does Jesus have the right to redeem? Absolutely he does. That's why he took on human flesh. That's why he became man, so that he can be our kinsman, like us in every way and yet without sin. The second was resources. Does Jesus have the resources? To redeem absolutely. He is a son of the living God 
who has authority over all things in heaven and on earth, over sin and death and the grave, and the third was resolved. Does Jesus have the resolve to redeem? Does he have the resolve? Does Jesus have the resolve to redeem him? who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, as Jesus had the right or the resources or the resolve to redeem Absolutely he does. And praise God for that. Praise God for that. This is a love story of all love stories. And the whole reason the book of Ruth is even in the Bible is to point us to Christ. The love Boaz had for Ruth was a foreshadow of Christ and the love that he would have for a hopeless people how he would redeem a people that no one else would redeem. Jesus stepped forward. He stepped out of heaven and took on humanity to pay the price for your redemption and mine. Because see, you and I are Ruth. We are Ruth. Our sin, our sin has made us unclean. Our sin has separated us from a holy God. And what you and I deserve for our sin, our disobedience, our, our rejection of his authority, our belittling of his glory is death, eternal death. Eternal separation from God in a place called hell. But God. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace, it is, you have been saved. And this is true of all who have put their trust in Jesus for their redemption. Some of you here have never put your trust in Christ. For your redemption. But today you have the opportunity to do that. Listen, you are not here by chance. It's no accident that you are here today. You are here because God has led you here. So that you would see the glory of Christmas. So that you would see that you have been perceived by the God of heaven himself. And I implore you, I implore you this day, give your heart to Christ. Surrender to his love and let him change your story, your destiny forever. Now those of you that have trusted in Christ as your redeemer. I want to remind you today of the hope that you have in him. The hope that you have in him. I know that some of you here today are hurting. I know we can come into a place like this and put on a brave face. 
put on a face that says everything is fine. But you are facing challenges in your life right now that are breaking your heart. Life is for you has not turned out the way you had hoped. And it feels like there's been one setback after another after another. And you wonder where God is. Here's what I want to say to you. Hope is not a situation. Hope is not an experience. Hope is not a change in circumstance. Hope is a person. And his name is Jesus. And he came at Christmas time to turn your bitterness, your hopelessness, your disappointments and your disillusionments into worship. I know that God seems so distant to some of you. There's some of you sitting right where you are. God just feels so far. I'm here to remind you this morning that God is closer to you than you realize. And he is at work in your life right now. He's working. I know you can't see it. I know you can't feel it. But he's at work. The sovereign God of the universe is at work in your your life right now. He He is orchestrating the events of your life has set the stage for the greatest demonstration of his goodness and love to you. So trust him. Trust him. Trust in his promise that he who did not spare his own son for you will withhold nothing good from you. So trust in him today. Let me invite you now to bow your heads with me. And let's just go into a time of reflection and prayer. I don't know where you find yourself today. As it is often said, this is the happiest time of the year. It's Christmas. For many, nothing could be further from the truth. Some of you right now are going through stuff that the people around you have no idea. Some of you, your hearts are breaking into a million pieces, even as I speak. And you are facing hardships and challenges that go beyond what you can handle. If you are in Christ, you have hope. As long as God is in the picture, and he is, you have hope. And that's what Ruth is about. In a hopeless situation, He brought hope. And that is God's word to you this morning. You have hope. Whatever your longings are, 
whatever the deepest desires of your heart may be. If you are in Christ, you have all the hope you need. If you have never trusted in Christ, if you have never put your trust in him as your redeemer, I want to invite you now to do so. And you can pray something like this, and you can pray this along with me. Jesus, I come to you now. And I put my trust in you. I believe in you. I believe that you are the son of the living God. And I believe that you came to the world you created. I believe you took on human flesh. I believe you lived the life that I should have lived. And you died the death that I should have died. So that I might be redeemed. So that I might stand perfect in the sight of God. And today, this day, I open my heart to you. And I ask you to come in. And take your place, your rightful place in my heart. And I bow my knee to you as my Lord, as my Savior, as my treasure. If you have prayed that prayer, after we sing and after I give the benediction, some of us will be up here. Will you just come up to us and let us know that you made a decision today for Christ? And we will gladly speak with you and give you the next steps. God, we thank you for your word this morning. And God, we thank you for your love. The great love with which you have loved us. God, even when we were dead in our sins, you made us alive with Christ. Thank you, God, for the hope that we have. Not just in this life, but in the life to come. That because of you, Jesus, because you stepped out of heaven, because you took on humanity, because you lived the life that we should have lived and died the death we should have died. Oh God, we have everything we need. And today, God, we worship you. We set our gaze on you. God, we set our sights on you. And Father, I pray for all those who are struggling here. All those who are struggling with depression. All those who are struggling with anxiety all those who are struggling with broken relationships, all those who are tossing and turning at night, all those who are without rest, God, I pray that you would inject hope into their hearts right now. The hope that comes not from a change in circumstance, but the hope that comes from knowing, God, that you are with them, that you really are Emmanuel. God, I pray that you would encourage your people today. 
And those who are not your people, God, I pray that you would make them your people. God, call them. Call them unto yourself. Open their eyes, God. Open the eyes of their hearts that they might see. That they might see for who you are. And that they might surrender to your love. Thank you, God. Thank you for your love. A love. demonstrated in Christ. Thank you, God, for working in us. Thank you, God, that you are at work right now. You are working in us. You are working in our lives right now. God, help us to believe it. Help us, God, to believe it. Even when we can't see it, help us to know that you are here, that you are near, that you will never forsake us, that you will never Help us, God, to know it. For our good and your glory. In Jesus' name.